Western investors need to bring the savvy that God has given them through gift and experience to the table. We need to understand culture. I did not understand African culture at that time. I much more fully understand it now. And I think Western investors sometimes approach founders from these frontier and emerging markets not understanding the complexities of their culture, not understanding the family dynamic. The Swahili word Ubuntu means I am because we are. And whenever you make an investment into a company, you aren't just making an investment into a company, you are making an investment into an extended family. Welcome to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. If you're a fund manager, investor, or financial advisor driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected in the Faith Driven Investor community is to sign up for our newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community. One of the things we've heard the community asks us for is help in finding great deals to invest in. And so we've launched Marketplace. It's a new platform of funds and direct deals. Everything from private equity and real estate funds to ETFs. From philanthropic to market rate deals spanning the U.S. and emerging markets. Check it out at faithdriveninvestor.org forward slash marketplace. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you have about being a faith-driven investor. All opinions expressed on this podcast, including the team and guests, are solely their opinions. Host and guest may maintain positions in the companies and securities discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as specific investment advice for any individual or organization. So welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. It's a special edition. Anytime you get to talk with great, great friends and coworkers and you get to talk about something that you've been working on, it's pretty cool. And so today with us, we've got Ruben Coulter all the way from Bristol, England. Ruben, good morning. Good evening. Yeah, it's late in the evening. Great to be with you, Henry. I bet it is. I mean, if it's mid-morning here on the Pacific, so it's going to be well in your evening. Thank you for staying up. And then we've got Ray Barrett, all the way from Kansas City, Missouri. Probably one of the last interviews we'll do with you, Ray, before you head over to Africa. But you're still in Kansas City, correct? I most certainly am. And it's great to be with you this afternoon, Henry. So one of the things we've gotten a sense for during COVID is just the backdrops that everybody has. And for a long time, Ruben didn't have much of a backdrop. He's amended that and he's got some really nice paintings behind him now. But the most epic non-virtual backdrop has always been Ray Barris, where he's got this ultimate, just beautiful library behind him of all of these books. And it's just really, really cool. It's the best one out there. You probably have the best Christian book collection. Although I was on a podcast recently with Tim Keller and his backdrop was also <laughs> really, really impressive. But I think that you may even have more titles as I look behind you, more titles with Jesus in the name of the book than anybody else's book collection I've ever seen. <laughs> Don't you have any books on like sports or something else? No, but I have a lot of books on startups and I have a lot of books on sailing. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my stuff. I love sailing. Been a sailor for 40 years. Kansas City, Missouri has got to be a difficult place to be a sailor. It is, but I lived in the UK for almost 16, 17 years and uh, sailed around Britain three or four times, done a couple across the Atlantic and the Med. Did the Med not... is Ruben, did you know that? Sailing. 
I did. I did. I have to say, I'd love to go sailing with Ray, but I'm a fair weather sailor. So take me to the Mediterranean and sunshine. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. I'm embarrassed to have not known that. That's extreme. I knew that Ray Barrett was really, really cool. I didn't know you <laughs> sailed transatlantic. Yes. Yes. And, uh, in my little catamaran. Yeah, we've done it a couple of times. <laughs> done it a couple of times. That's incredible. What are you doing for summer break? Wow, that's pretty <laughs> awesome. Okay, so I'm going to set up the topic that we're going to talk about today. But then I do want to circle back to who each of you are. I want to let our listeners know some of your background and why you're on the team and the roles that you play. But this is an episode that you found yourselves on in which we try to answer some of the questions like, I've heard that investing in Africa is important, but I have no idea how to go about doing it. It's got to be insurmountable to think about discovery and diligence and ongoing management of an investment portfolio there. Am I just better off just investing in an international index fund? Isn't there some other way for me to be able to gain international exposure? Or should I just be giving money to clean water missions overseas? And is that just really the best way for me to impact Africa? And of course, because you're on this podcast, you'll understand that we think that it is very feasible, although it can be daunting, but it's very important for Christ followers to store their investment assets in a way that participates in the work that God is doing in the world. And I would submit that of all the continents that God is absolutely at work in Africa, if for no other reason for the fact that he has seen to it that there's a very young population where there are going to be more people entering into the workplace over the course of the next 20 years mm -hmm. than the populations of India and China, or actually all those that are coming into the job market in India and China. So huge opportunity in Africa. How do you make sense of it as a faith-driven investor? During our time together today with Ray and Ruben, we're going to wade into that and see if indeed it is feasible. Ray and Ruben, thanks for being with us on the program. Ruben, who are you and where do you come from? And what's the role that you have on the team? Yeah, so as you might be able to tell from my accent, I'm from Ireland originally. My wife is Polish. Our first child was born in Switzerland and our second child in Kenya. So we're a real international family. My background is I'm a public health specialist by training. I spent the first part of my career in Africa in refugee camps building public health programs. But over time became, I guess, frustrated by the limitations of aid and development in addressing the big problems of healthcare, education, poverty on the continent, and became increasingly interested in the role the private sector has to play. And how does business create a difference in these communities? And that's taken me on a journey to the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, where I ran their Africa portfolio, and to most recently living and working in Kenya, supporting entrepreneurs and helping them grow and scale their businesses. And now I find myself a faith-driven investor, and I have the joy, the privilege to work with our partners all around the world and really understand how do we build out the entrepreneurial ecosystem? What does it take to nurture, to support, to build the capacity of entrepreneurs so that they succeed? And we're allocating our energy, our resources, our capital to make sure that that happens. Thank you. Thank you. Ray, do the same, please. So, and you work in a part-time capacity, but a very important one as a key part of our overall strategic team and then with a particular emphasis on Africa, but you do some other things too. So bring us up to speed about what God has done in your life. Well, thanks, Henry, for that. I think my story is a little like me. It's getting somewhat longer in the tooth. And my story is more about God and his faithfulness and his long-suffering towards a young boy of nine years of age, whom he introduced himself to in the spring of 1963. 
And that started me on a unique life trajectory, developed within me my worldview and the Lord's journey with me. We've had some awesome adventures together. I was privileged to be able to start a few small businesses, very, very much traditional brick and mortar companies. I had a chain of three automobile dealerships, a small chain of 22 convenience stores. We did about 80 million a year in revenue. That was in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. In the spring of 1985, I really felt the Lord tell me to sell my businesses and move to the UK where I had strong relationships with a church planting group. And I had planted a church here in the States as I was building up my businesses. And so I did that and sold the whole kit and caboodle up, packed up my family, and we moved to the UK in May of 1985. And we had committed to go for two years. We ended up spending 16 years there. And we launched eight or nine churches. We led a Christian publishing house. I launched a Christian film studio called Dale's Television. And then I had an opportunity to get into the dairy business for my own company. And we grew that to the fifth largest dairy company in the UK. That was based in Cardiff in South Wales. And that's when I was really introduced to Sub-Saharan Africa during that 85 year, 1985 to the year 2000. And it was exciting stuff. I had the privilege of working with several pastors. We launched vocational training centers. We built community health clinics. We dug wells. We built schools. We trained pastors and leaders. And of course, I lost my shirt in terrible investments that I made in sub-Saharan Africa with so-called Christian businesses led by so-called Christian entrepreneurs. And, you know, that was a life-changing experience. I learned a lot as to how not to do impact investing. And that's when I learned how to sail and competed in cross-country hunter trials with my trusty steed named Matt Dillon, who I named from the marshal <laughs> at Gunsmoke. That puts an age on me right there. Most of your listeners won't even know what Gunsmoke is. And uh, well, we know what Matt Dillon is. And Matt, so I thought, you named, your, I thought you named the horse after the actor, but no, it was the character in Gunsmoke. It was a character in Gunsmoke. Yeah, Matt, that Matt Dillon came around 25 years later. <laughs> but yeah, Matt Dillon from Gunsmoke. And then I came back to the States, launched a very small lower middle market M&A firm. Our sweet spot was around 15 to 25 million. That was based out of Miami. And I learned a lot in that business, Henry. We were sector agnostic, and we represented both buy and sell sides. And I got to work with a lot of different VC firms and REITs out of Europe. And I just got a huge cross-industry experience. And so you fast forward to today, I feel like everything that I've done in my life, God has prepared me for what I'm doing now. I work at this outfit called Agora Enterprises. We have an accelerator program, a faith-driven accelerator program called Venture Village, And we work as capacity builders and disciples of entrepreneurs in Zambia, Nigeria, Kenya. And we help them to build out their business models and to learn how to be the hands, feet, and voice of Jesus through their business. And of course, one of the greatest opportunities that I have is to represent the FDI, FDE movement in being your guys' eyes and ears on the ground in Nairobi. And Lord willing, we'll be moving there in Nairobi. So life is exciting. So that's super encouraging. There's so many different places that we could go. I love this. On the next episode, we'll talk about the British 
kids TV channel. That's also fascinating. But you mentioned something along the way there that I think is really important. And I think that we need to acknowledge that there are real headwinds for investors as they start to think about investing in Africa. Most people understand that there's great opportunity. Most people also understand that there have been some real challenges with foreign aid. Question is, can you invest in Africa? Can you do it well? Can you do it in a God-honored way? Can you trust people on the ground? And you hit head on some of the challenges that people see. People have heard of people losing money in Africa, and you have done that. And you've done that not only with entrepreneurs, but you've done that with entrepreneurs who purported to be uh, driven by their faith. So share with Mm -hmm. us a bit about that and some of your lessons learned. And then together with Ruben, I want to get into some of the initiatives that you guys have put into place Mm -hmm. with the playbook to address some of those things. But first, let's air out some of the dirty laundry. What has it looked like as you've learned some lessons along the way? Well, you're absolutely right. I did lose money in my investments in Africa with Christian entrepreneurs. I did that and I did it very well. I, I could what does that mean? You lost a lot of money? Very. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if you're going to lose money, you know, lose it. And at yeah. the end of the day, I did. And I made some, you know, incredible errors. And I think I was fairly young at the time and far too trusting and believing what people said. And that was a big mistake. So I think there were many mistakes that I made. One was not journeying with the entrepreneurs enough, not getting to know them, not following up with their community to really understand what community they are walking with, who is journeying with them, who is their pastor, what church do they go to, what community groups are they involved in, how do they serve in their community. So I did not do a very good job at that. And of course, you know, looking at trying to understand their business model I did not pursue that sufficiently. I think I was so excited about the idea of investing and, you know, having this fairy tale image of helping these entrepreneurs. I was too quick to move. And the money that I lost over these few deals wasn't huge amounts. It probably amounted to, I don't know, 80 to $100,000. It probably stung my pride more than anything. And it clearly showed how incredibly incompetent I was at this. And it caused me to stop and say, all right, look, I have to back up and look at this through an entirely different lens. I would not have made these mistakes in the West. What prompted me to do that here? And I think a lot of that was my desire to just bless people and to disregard some of the red flags. When you Mm. do not want to do that, A red flag is a red flag, whether it's in the United States or whether it's in sub-Saharan Africa, and you need to recognize that. And so I think Western investors need to bring the savvy that God has given them through gift and experience to the table. We need to understand culture. I did not understand African culture at that time. I much more fully understand it now. And I think Western investors sometimes approach founders from these frontier and emerging markets, not understanding the complexities of their culture, not understanding the family dynamic. The Swahili word Ubuntu means I am because we are. And whenever you make an investment into a company, you aren't just making an investment into a company, you are making an investment into an extended family. And so there is no private money It's all family money. 
And if one family member needs an operation, well, you as the leading member, as the head of the clan, you need to reach out and help pay for that. Or maybe some other relative needs school fees paid or university fees paid. You know, there are all these things. So an African investor receives a $50,000 investment from the West, $20,000, $25,000 go out the door to family money. They don't consider that corruption. That's their life. What do you mean? This is community money. We are a family, Ubuntu, and we move as one. So to understand that culture and to learn how to address that, those are the things I just did not understand. So yes. you talked about this time from 1985 to 2000, where mm -hmm. you're running some business in the UK, you start investing in Africa, you're starting to learn some of these lessons. And you went in and in the midst of this, you said, okay, there's got to be a better way. Yes. I'm not going to abandon my love and my desire to be a blessing to people in Africa, but I clearly yes. got to do it better. Yes. What was your first step toward that, doing it differently than you had been? Right. My very first step was to seek God and to seek out the community as to who I could partner with. I think I was displaying a bit of arrogance to think that I could go into these markets and do this on my own. I mean, that was just stupidity on my part. Once I found a good partner, a local partner I'm talking about, a solid Christian brother or sister, an organization that I could depend on and that would walk with me on the journey. That really, really was helpful. And for me, my relationship with the navigators in Africa, mm. particularly in Kenya, really proved beneficial. To this day, they are one of the primary recruiters for our Venture Village Accelerator. And I'll tell you this, when you partner with a strong local partner, the founders you get may not be super great guys when it comes to business modeling or the business opportunity they're bringing to the table, but they are men and women of true faith and true integrity. They will sell their right arm before they default on your loan. And they are men and women who love God, who love you and embrace you. And... Um, that totally changes the experience. So I would encourage any investor from the West, if you want to be a part of generosity in these frontier and emerging markets, you know, let us or let someone help you find a good partner in these markets. That's essential. Ray, I think what you're getting at here, and I'd love for Ruben to comment on this as well, is this kind of social community dynamic that lends to good, healthy business. If you're on the outside of the community dynamic, as you just talked about, there are different types of ethics and a cultural emphasis than we'd find in America. Generally, if we're in Western Europe and America, and somebody goes ahead and signs and affirms that they're going to do one thing or another with the money you give them, generally they do that. In the emerging market, that doesn't happen as much, and we might be appalled at the fact that they don't honor their word, and yet it's completely consistent with their culture. And yet the culture that has an emphasis on community can also be a really great positive dynamic as well. And I think that we're seeing some of that and have seen some of that with microfinance, right? So Muhammad Yunus and the people that have followed afterwards have understood that the concept of social collateral and social standing within the local community is a very powerful force. And so rather than having this kind of external, we're coming in with an investment dollars from the West and we're coming into the frontier markets on our own, thinking that that dynamic will work like it might be for an investor from New York investing in California. What we're doing is you're suggesting that you go into the community, find the community partner that has been there long enough to be into the local community as well. 
and then partnering with them. So what do I mean by that? Well, it's microfinance is famous for providing loans to the poor, right, Ruben? So one of the things that seems to characterize lending to the poor is high repayment rates, and yet you'd expect them to be very low. So explain to us a little bit more about what does this community investment and this social collateral concept look like in emerging markets? Yeah, so you gave a great example. Uh, Microfinance repayment rates are phenomenal, typically 95% repayment rates. And the reason is that the loan is not made to the individual, the loan is made to the group. And therefore, the group is responsible. Their social reputation is at risk if the loan defaults. At a larger scale, there's a really interesting example, which is the Indian community in Africa. Um, So Indians moved over here during the period of colonialism, building the railways, but they've become some of the most dynamic entrepreneurs on the continent. And the reason is their close family ties. It allows them to borrow money from relatives in India, to trade exports and imports back and forth, all based on relationships of trust. And that allows them to grow their businesses at an incredibly dynamic pace. And if someone breaches that trust, well, they're excluded from the community. And I think the question is, how do we create that as Christians, as Christian investors and Christian entrepreneurs, how do we develop those networks of trust? So in your instance, specifically, Ray, you started working with the navigators because you had seen where they had had a longstanding relationship in some of these major cities in East and Southern Africa. Is that right? Yes. And the navigators, you know, are all locally run. So these are African navigators. And they really helped me in understanding the uh, cultural buy-in. And they also provided me with kudos within the community, a standing uh, within Mm. the community that I did not have on my own. It was a great relationship. Uh, You guys together with Russell Bjorkman, who also is here at Faith Driven Investor, have written a playbook for investors who want to engage in frontier and emerging markets. Give us a brief overview. Maybe we'll start with you, Ruben. Tell us a bit about what it's about and how is it different from regular investing and due diligence? Yeah, so a regular investment process and the due diligence that goes with it is typically lengthy and can be expensive. And if you're making an investment of 50 to 100,000 in a frontier emerging market, you don't want to spend five or 10,000 on due diligence fees. So our question is, How do we reduce those costs? How do we make this an efficient process, which is tailored for the local market where some things which we would expect to find in the US or in Europe may not exist? And how do we create a common language so both the entrepreneur and the investor understand if the business is investment ready, what stage the business is at? So we've built out this playbook, which essentially has four steps to it. Step one is engaging the entrepreneur. So how do you do that assessment of the entrepreneur's chemistry, their character, their competence, and of course, the culture? Step two is, how do you assess if the business is actually investment ready? If this business is able to take on the capital, absorb it, and grow at the rate that you expect? Step three is essentially a light touch due diligence process, looking at the legal, looking at the financials, looking at that social collateral we talked about. And step four is kind of saying, actually, once the investment happens, you need to build in post-investment capacity building and monitoring and support if you really want to see this business succeed and flourish. So we've created a playbook which walks you through this. 
and a toolkit which goes along with it, which allows you to do this in an easy and efficient manner. So we see this as something that investors can use for themselves, or indeed they can partner with a local partner, an accelerator, an incubator, an advisory firm to go through this process with them to help them on the journey. Okay, so you're getting an important point here. And for those of us who are used to doing diligence in the States and used to working with companies that might even have data rooms, so things are just completely set for us, we're used to spending five or 10 or $15,000 in doing a quality of earnings and doing rigorous diligence. And one would think that, gosh, you need to step it up and do it even more exhaustive diligence if you're going to place money in Africa. But to your point, some of these companies that are really leaders in their communities are only looking for 25 or 50 grand. So nobody's going to be sending 10 or $15,000 to put 25 or 50 grand to work. And yet, because you work with faith-driven investor, of course, you believe that that's something we need to be looking at. So that only works when you are able to be much more efficient with your diligence spend. What are the pieces that make that happen? How does that happen? How can you do, say, 80% of the diligence with only 20% of the spend? What are the things that allowed for that to happen in a place like Africa that are different than the United States? Because most people say, I'm doing the math, that's impossible. But yet you've come up with some thoughts on that with working with local partners. Tell us more about it. Well, I think firstly, if you're able to find local investors who have skin in the game, that's of huge value because they understand the context, the market, they can do the social diligence far better than you ever can. And of course, they're able to help on that post-investment follow-up. One of the myths is that local capital isn't available. That's not true. There are local investors who are making investments, equity and debt in the local market. And being able to find those, partner with them and walk alongside them is incredibly powerful. I think the second thing that we found is there's some really talented consulting professionals with some of the top big four firms. So EY, KPMG, et cetera, and many of whom are believers and really want to see the investment in their ecosystem succeed. And so they're willing to use their talent and expertise at a reduced cost to see investment flow into these businesses. And putting together this playbook hopefully gives them a very simple way to apply the tools that we've developed and do that due diligence for under $1,000. Ray, you spent a lot of time on the ground and it was largely your leadership and vision together with some very capable assistance from Russell and Ruben, of course, that kind of led us here. Help us to understand some of the work that you did over the spring and summer amidst the COVID situation we found ourselves in that helped lead you to birthing this. And maybe you can just walk us through an example, maybe Educor, maybe somebody else, Bunks and Biddles. Why don't you walk us through how something like this actually came to bear and how it actually works? Yes. Well, I'd be happy to, Henry. Um, as you're aware, you know, COVID hit us very hard and hit our frontier and emerging markets very hard. Our founders, we had some wonderful businesses who were flourishing. You mentioned Educor, a wonderful faith-driven educator in Kenya who operates multiple schools and had just taken on some investment money from one of our funding partners. And she was hit very dramatically because suddenly her school was shut down. And she had no revenue. And of course, there was no government support. So we championed her and thought that along with her, and there were four or five 
other companies that were really suffering, that were in a similar boat as she was, and that how could we help to raise COVID relief money to just help her get through this interim period. And of course, due diligence has always been a challenge. And I remember when Educor went through their main due diligence, it took a long, long time, well over a year, and it was very costly. And it was frustrating, not only to our founder, Prisca Miodi, but also to the investor. And I thought we must simplify this. And so we gathered together and we thought, how can we come up with a due diligence process that does not carry a fiduciary guarantee, it does not have any type of assurance guarantee, but it is sufficiently robust to give real comfort to the investor. And it is at a price point that will be attractive to an investor, that it provides sufficient independent, and I think that's the crucial element, it's an independent review, and it is sufficiently done, sufficiently robust to make these small loans more attractive to investors. So we looked at that, we developed a system, we have a due diligence discovery list uh, that's quite comprehensive. We have an independent review by either a former partner or former director of KPMG or Deloitte's, And these are wonderful Christian guys. And they have agreed to go on for an insight independent review. They actually do a 360 amongst the executive team. They interview the employees. They call up their customers. They actually do a physical spot check and a review of the financials. And they put that into a report form. And so it is not a complete comprehensive due diligence process, but it is very good. And for the amount of money, we think it's absolutely excellent. And we invite investors to come and peruse our work and to take a look at what we do. So the whole playbook consists of an assessment on the entrepreneur and his business. And it clearly states where we see him on the investment ready grid. Or her. Educore, so many. Educor, have, absolutely. Most of them are female led. 40% of our founders are women. Yes. Mm. Uh, and then also you mentioned something I now interrupted you twice yeah. in 30 seconds, but you talk about independent. And I yes. think that that's something that's really important. One of the things, and that's where some of these professionals come in from KPMG and others, there are some really wonderful partners on the ground in frontier markets that have loved on these entrepreneurs and have really just done a great job with spiritual formation and discipleship, providing some of the basics on customer acquisition and retention and intellectual property and distribution channels, et cetera. They are not always the best people though, to do independent diligence because they have been a cheerleader for the business. They've been an encourager and sometimes aren't able to have the same type of a skeptical eye that maybe you need when you're doing discovery and diligence. So these are people that are coming on board who are given a playbook, but don't have any type of institutional allegiance to the partner organization in the field that has nurtured the company up until that point. Is that correct? Yes, that's exactly correct. They are completely independent assessors, In most cases, they have never met the founder and they have never been introduced to the business before. Good. Okay. Ruben, I want to come back to you. I want to talk about some of the observations that you've seen over the course of the last four or five months about developments in emerging markets and your hopes, your fears, 
somebody's listening to this and they're saying, okay, so I, I'm thinking I'm getting it. They're making the case for making investments in frontier markets. You can make a lot of mistakes if you don't do it in local partnership with people that are on the ground that already have the social standing and who can lend you that social standing. I can see that there's independent discovery and diligence. There's this light touch diligence, this light touch playbook, if you will. But what are we missing here? And what I'm getting at here is a little bit of a leading question is that I want you to have kind of a multifaceted answer for a Christ follower who's compelled to invest in emerging markets, who might look at one hand on individual deals, but are there professionals that can help them do this too? Yeah. So I would say it's a really exciting time in emerging and frontier markets. There is lots of entrepreneurial energy, lots of new ventures springing up all the time. So separate the wheat from the weeds is the biggest challenge that any investor faces. And when you are thousands of miles away from a completely different cultural background, that is going to be incredibly difficult. And the good news is there are great partners on the ground. We have a network of over 30 incubators, accelerators, and advisory firms in almost every corner of the world. And they've been operating there, working to support and build a capacity of entrepreneurs. So I would say the starting point is find that local guide who can help you navigate the culture. I think secondly is see if they can help you access the local investor network in that community and build those relationships with others who can co-invest alongside you because they'll be able to act as your eyes and ears on the ground. And I think thirdly, there are people who are very experienced in helping build and scale these businesses and don't just take a passive investment approach, but see if you can actively bring in the additional talented needed to disciple, to mentor, and to scale these businesses. And so if you're able to bring more than capital to the table, you're providing huge added value and ultimately creating impact in those communities through jobs, through spiritual transformation, through social impact. And I'd also add to that, of course, that there are an increasing number of professional fund managers that have active spiritual integration in what they do with really neat track records. And over the last three or four months, I think we've collectively been really encouraged by the funds that are out there. And when I look at the extent of the professional management, and these are funds like Talenton, when I think about emerging markets, I think about IBEX, people that have been in the developing world for, in many cases, decades really working with the local community and then allocating investment capital where they see real opportunities. Recently, really within the last six months or so, we've seen an emergence of African fund managers, including folks that are coming out of Bridgewater Capital, Richard Akello at Sango Capital out of Johannesburg, serious about his faith with a great investment track record. And we got Sahel and Siri Ventures and Future Africa and Saad and Tree of Life. And so there's an increased number, an industry that I would say is really starting to flourish of professional managers who have great track records, great inroads into the local community, and are really serious about their faith. What does it look like to love on their CEOs in their portfolio in a way that points them to God, helps them to have their identity rooted in Christ? And then this alternate imagination about how they might lead their businesses, create products and services that really help societies flourish in a way that points to God. One of the things we do at the end of every one of these podcasts, of course, is to ask our guests what they're hearing from God in his word. And so, of course, I want to make sure that we do the same with each of you, Ray and Ruben. And Ray, let's start with you. What are you hearing from God in his word? 
that might be an encouragement to our listeners? What the Lord has been speaking to me about recently, Henry, is what the kingdom looks like from a justice point of view. Particularly, how can we as leaders, as business leaders, help set the pace for God's restorative justice for the world? The Bible says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of the Lord's throne. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the seeker doers of righteousness, for they shall be filled. In Micah 6, 8, the prophet says, he has told you, O mortal, what is good, what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And then Micah's contemporary, Isaiah, talks about, is this not the fast that I have chosen for you to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked to cover him and do not hide yourself from your kin. And if you do this, then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, here I am. And as I've been focusing on these scriptures the last three or four days, the thought of how God has created us to be justice bringers. We as leaders, we as influencers, are to take the lead in demonstrating liberating justice, leading people to freedom and flourishing. I mean, if we can't do it with the resources that God has given us, who can? And I think for me in my life, I've been challenged in living in and through our business as Jesus lived. You know, Jesus said, as my father has sent me, so I send you. And as Jesus was to Israel, I think we are to be to the world. And that's a big challenge. And, uh, that's Thank a you challenge for that the that. Lord has helped me. Yeah. I love the way that you're responding to that challenge by saying that we're going to go ahead and we're relocating to Nairobi. We're going to yeah. be <laughs> we're rolling up our sleeves. We're getting involved. Ruben, how would you respond? Yeah, well, this year for many people has been incredibly challenging. And the Psalm that I keep returning to is Psalm 34. And in verse four and five, it says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces are never covered with shame. And if you ever get an opportunity in New York, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church has a choir which has put this psalm to music and it is just incredible. The next best thing is YouTube, but if you get to see it live in person and hear them sing this, it's just uh, really encouraging that when we look to God, our faces are radiant. He doesn't let us down. He doesn't let us be put to shame. And I just encourage many of our entrepreneurs or investors who maybe have found this year difficult to turn to God in these challenging times. That's a great word from you both. Thank you very much for helping us get an overview of what investing in emerging markets looks like. And may the Lord bless you in our audience and help us to figure out how to do this and how to learn from some of the lessons that we've all learned the hard way. But how do we love people in community, in fellowship, in a way that promotes relationship 
and helps both the investor and the investee come to know God more fully through the development of some really, really cool businesses that are in a really vibrant and dynamic market. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. We're very, very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven investor community. Hey, the best way for you to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. And while you're there, we of course want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people join the discussion now from all around the world. But it's also very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and one that you'll share with others. This podcast, it wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer, Justin Foreman, program director, Johnny Wills, music by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdrags.com and audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. Mm-hmm.